It was July 19th, A.D. 64, when Nero began to get unhinged. Caesar Nero. At the time of Paul's first imprisonment, early in the 60s, Nero still had some of his faculties. Uh, you know, he, It's very likely, though we don't see it in Scripture, very likely that he had conversation with Paul. You see, uh, Paul had appealed to Caesar. And to Caesar he went. And it was his first imprisonment, the one where he had the rented apartment. You may recall, he was chained, yes, to a guard 24-7, but at least people could come and go, and he had his own space. Well, that was back when Nero still had some right thinking. But on this day, July 19th, AD 64, Nero sat on his balcony fiddling while Rome burned. And most historians believe that Nero is the one who set the fires. Oh, perhaps not with his own hands, but his minions. It was his intention. He was such a megalomaniac that his desire was to burn down Rome so that he could rebuild it and have everything named after him. And then, of course, you have to have someone to blame if you're going to sit on your porch and you're going to fiddle while your city burns. And who better to blame than the Christians? And thus, the persecution began to mount By the time Paul is writing this letter, it's A.D. 67, and Nero has already gone completely berserk. We've talked about this many times, actually, over the years. How he would ride through his gardens as Christians dipped in hot wax were hung up on sticks and burned to death. Well, in A.D. 67, Nero had no longer any patience whatsoever for the Apostle Paul. This time Paul is back in prison, not a rented apartment, not just chained to a centurion, but he is in a dungeon cell. He's in a pit, cold and dark and damp. At the end of the letter, you will hear him ask Timothy to be sure to bring his cloak because winter's coming on and the situation is dire for the apostle. And as he writes, or perhaps better, dictates this letter, either to Luke or to Onesiphorus, One of these two guys it had to be. Probably Luke. As he dictates the letter to Luke, we realize, we know now, this is the last letter Paul would send. The final letter of the Apostle of all of his letters. And my prayer is that for all of us together, as I have been dealing with this for the last several weeks, and I have been poring over the letter and thinking about it, and I have realized once again how incredibly personal it is. Paul's pathos permeates the page. You feel not just the the heart behind the words, not just the passion with which he writes. Oh, there's passion in Romans. And there's deep love in Philippians. And you can go through each one of his letters and find unique things that you can really feel. But in this letter, you feel Paul's brokenness. You feel his hurt. You feel his pain. You feel his joy and his love. It's all here. And so my prayer is that we will feel this letter and not just study it. Oh, we're going to study it. We want to be sure the facts are right and our, and our understanding is true. But that we would feel emotionally what Paul is putting across here. Because while the Spirit intended this letter to be read and studied and presented as inspired Scripture, I'm not even sure Paul did. At least not throughout. Because again, it is so personal. This is a man about to die. As we talked about on Sunday, he is on death row. He is awaiting that final day when he would be beheaded. 
Now, Paul is not fearful, but he is thoughtful. He's not in a panic, but he's pensive. As he considers where he's at and what's about to come upon him, in his spirit, and you'll see all this in the letter, he longs to be with Jesus. But in his flesh, he longs to be with some other Christians. He longs for fellowship, companionship. And so his heart turns toward his beloved Son. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. And right there is several weeks worth of study. We'll try and cram it into just a few minutes. Paul claims God as Father and names Jesus as Lord three times each before he's even done saying hello. That's kind of characteristic of Paul in the greetings of all his letters because the Lord is always at the forefront. His letters begin with multiple references to Jesus because Jesus is always on Paul's mind. I remember years ago at a a church in Southern California where my pastor had this unique ability to always end at John 3.16. Every single sermon, that was the landing. When he went to John 3.16, people started to zip up their Bibles, you know, and, and put their coats on because they knew the service was almost over. He always brought it down to God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. I thought, that's marvelous. And as a younger pastor at the time myself, I thought, how do you do that? How do you have that presence of mind not to miss a single week of bringing it down to Jesus? And the reality is, when you think about Jesus all the time, you're going to talk about Him all the time. And so Paul does. And he opens the letter naming the Lord. This is where the Apostle's heart is. Now, he also knows as he names this, and part of the naming of God and of Christ Jesus is because Paul knows where his apostolic authority comes from. And you might note that. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. And he knows the source of that authority. In both First and Second Timothy, Paul leads off with his apostleship. Paul, an apostle. Well, that's not unusual. He does that in 9 out of 13 of his letters. He refers to himself as, as Paul the Apostle. But what's unique here is that in this letter, it's such a personal letter. It's kind of odd that he would do that. It'd be like if I, if I was sending Les a text and I began, Rick, a pastor of the Bridge Christian Fellowship, to Les, grace and peace and mercy to you, you know, and then went on. Les knows I'm a pastor, but we don't call each other pastors. You know, we just call each other Rick and Les. Reckless. So, I wouldn't do that. Well, why is Paul doing it here with Timothy? Well, you might say, well, he did it in 1 Timothy. Yeah, but in 1 Timothy, the difference between that letter and this one, in fact, the difference between 1 Timothy and Titus and 2 Timothy, though all three are pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy and Titus are read by pastors of churches and probably read to the churches. 2 Timothy is for Timothy. 1 Timothy is for Timothy, the pastor of Ephesus. So the Ephesian church would hear this letter read. 2 Timothy... Now, Timothy may have shared the letter. I'm not saying that he didn't, but that wasn't the intention. Paul is writing to his beloved son as we read, and yet he still calls out, he holds out his apostleship. Why? 
Eight out of 13 letters, Paul uses the apostleship as a standard of his authority. He is writing as one with authority. In this letter, I believe Paul is writing more from a position of loyalty. Even to remind Timothy, his beloved son, (laughs) I'm an apostle. I am writing to you, though I love you, though you are a son to me in the faith, I am yet still an apostle. It's as if Paul, picture this, loans or raises up a chained hand and says, I'm still on mission here. I'm still an apostle. I am still relevant. I am still legitimate. What I have to share with you is not passe. I am not dropped out of the picture, though I am in prison here. Wouldn't Timothy know that? Well, of course Timothy would. But this letter is from a man who's not only alone, he's a man who is absolutely deserted by the church. I can't imagine. You know, in my healing over the last few weeks, I've always known I've had my church family with me. I've known I have my church family to come back to. And thank you for all the cards and letters. And if you didn't send a card or letter, well, you still have time. But I, to be alone is one thing. To be deserted? Abandoned? Paul is, for many, I believe, an embarrassment in his imprisonment. As if the church is are looking at him and they're just not sure what to do with him. To a large extent, as we'll see in this chapter, Paul recognizes he's been abandoned by the very churches that he planted across Asia. And so when he says at the very beginning, Paul, an apostle, though he is writing to Timothy, he's saying, Timothy, nothing's changed. Yes, I'm in prison. That does not change the inspiration of the Spirit of God. You know, you might be in prison in your life somewhere. There might be some sense of imprisonment. You're bound to a job, bound to a physical situation, bound to some problem, bound to a difficult marriage, and yet the Spirit of the living God still is at work. Don't think that just because you're chained up that the Spirit of liberty and peace and joy is not present and is not there to inspire and speak to and through you. And so he's an apostle. I love the fact that Paul is so real. Well, truly that the Scriptures are so real. That Paul will talk about these things. He talks about those who abandon him. He mentions being deserted. He shares things that you might say, I might say, oh Paul, I wouldn't have said that. That's kind of a mark on the church. As he'll say down in verse 15, you're aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me. Oh, Paul, don't say that. Don't say that out loud. We don't want a bad name to be spoken of of the churches in Asia. You know, I was, Paul is just telling it like it is. The Bible tells it like it is. It's never sugar-coated. Have you noticed that in the Scriptures? The good, the bad, and the ugly are all there. Minus Clint Eastwood. The Scriptures are not sugar-coated. They're not glossed over. They're real people with real problems. And Paul was really rejected. And if you've ever felt that kind of rejection, not only does Paul understand, but pay attention to this letter. Because the way Paul deals with it is the right way to deal with having been rejected. Note also, from early on, the Apostle knew his singular allegiance. This is really kind of the first thing to consider, and I'm not giving you a list here, but the first thing, I think, to consider when you feel rejected or abandoned by other Christians, even by the church itself, 
Remember your first source of allegiance is Jesus Christ. It is not the church. Now, I love the church as I've told you. And I feel a loyalty to my brothers and sisters. But should everyone else abandon me, I am first and foremost a disciple of Jesus Christ. So Paul coming out the gate with his his apostleship here is simply stating the truth. I'm an apostle by the will of God. Back in Galatians 1.10, at the very early days of his ministry, Paul said, if I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Feeling rejected? Remember what we talked about Sunday? God never leaves. God does not reject you. He is Savior. So, Paul's apostleship, an apostle of Christ Jesus, and then he goes on, and there are a few things in this uh, salutation that are really worth picking apart. This greeting parallels 1 Timothy. If you, if you read the first two verses of 1 Timothy, then read these first two verses, you might go, oh, he's just saying the same thing. Close, but there are three distinct differences, and I think they're outstanding in this particular letter. First difference is this. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1, he writes, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, that's the same. Then he says, according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus. Here he says, by the will of God. By the will of God. Not just commanded, but compelled. Interesting, today I got an email from Spencer Headley. And Spencer asked me the question, what's the difference between God's desire and God's will? I love the Spencer questions because they always make me think. What's the difference between God's desire and God's will? And I thought about that and realized God's desire will go unfulfilled. God's will will not. God's desire, He desires that all people be saved. But His will is that the provision for that salvation was made through the blood of Jesus. He did everything necessary. He desires everybody to be saved. Everyone will not be saved. But He willed that all things would be done so that everybody could be saved. The desire and the will of God. God commanded Paul to be an apostle, but here Paul says, (laughs) not just commanded, willed, compelled to be an apostle. Paul had skin in the game. He had some choice in this. But he realizes here at the end of his life how willed he was to a life work that he is now about to complete by the goading of God. I love what he says in Acts 26.14. Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. I mean, Jesus calls Paul on it. Paul had been already struggling with the issue of Yeshua. Who is this Jesus? He had already been having these pangs of guilt over how he was treating Christians. He was already struggling in his heart. And Jesus calls it out. It's hard to do that, isn't it? It's hard to run against the grain. It's hard to push against the will of God. Paul finally turns himself over to the will of God. And here at the end he says, by the will of God. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 1, the second difference, verse 1, he says he's an apostle uh, by the will or, or by the commandment of God. And then he says, of Christ Jesus who is our hope. Here he says, note this, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus. Before imprisonment, Christ Jesus is our hope. And now, the promise of life. Why the change? Oh, I think it's absolutely revealing. Now Paul's facing death. 
Now it's right here. And so many of us walk through our lives and Jesus is our hope. But death's out there. You know, that, that life could be over in a week doesn't really hit a lot of us unless something takes place in our lives that causes us to recognize our mortality. Paul's recognizing his mortality at the hands of Rome. And so right there he says, oh, according to the promise of life. Note down in verse 10, he says, our Savior Christ Jesus abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the Gospel. In chapter 2, verse 11, he says it's a trustworthy statement. If we died with Him, we will also live with Him. And over in chapter 4, verse 18, Paul says, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely into His heavenly kingdom. Oh, the letter is laced not just with hope, but with the promise of life as Paul recognizes it now. That's the best way to face mortality. With the promise of life. Life in Christ Jesus, who Himself said, Revelation 2.10, Be faithful until death. I will give you the crown of life. This isn't just a hope on Paul's radar. It's the entire monitor before him. By the will of God, according to the promise of life. And the third difference we note in verse 2, he says to Timothy, my beloved son. In 1 Timothy, it's to Timothy, my true child in the faith. This is a a faith relationship, a father-son relationship based on the fact that Timothy probably became saved on Paul's first missionary journey. And then when Paul comes back on his second missionary journey, Acts chapter 16, he grabs hold of Timothy and says, you've got to come with me now. So Timothy truly was a, a true child in faith, but now he calls him my beloved son, and that is exclusive language of God the Father for Christ the Son. Nobody else in Scripture refers to a beloved son. God refers to Jesus as a beloved son, and Paul, in two places, refers to Timothy as his beloved son. He does it here. He also does it in 1 Corinthians 4.17, my beloved son. So Paul has, as he writes to Timothy, the affection of a father, being the spiritual father, at least, if not the father, Timothy never really had. Acts 16 tells us two times the only thing that we know about Timothy's father. Twice it repeats this phrase, his father was a Greek. His mother was a Jew and a believer. His father was a Greek. All we can pull out of that phrase is the understanding his father did not believe. The spiritual things of Timothy's life were not passed down by his father, but by his mother and his grandmother, who we read about as well. Down in verse 5, Lois and Eunice, these two wonderful women of faith who pass along their faith to their son Timothy. But not his dad. Timothy lacked that. All we get of his bio dad, he was a Greek. It's not a bad thing to be Greek. If you happen to be Greek, wonderful. Opa. But he wasn't Greek and a believer. He wasn't a follower of Jesus. And so we learn again in verse 5, Paul, uh, Timothy's spiritual heritage was, as we said on Sunday, passed along to him by his four mothers. Actually, his two mothers, but they were before him. You know what I'm saying. One more thing to note in this greeting. And that is... A pattern. I shared this with our staff this morning. I find it interesting. You'll only find it in the pastoral epistles. Of all the letters of Paul, all of Paul's greetings begin 
grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Or some variation, but he always says grace and peace. You know, grace, charis, that Greek greeting. And then peace, shalom, that very Jewish greeting. But here, note what Paul says. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. First Timothy 1 2, he says, Grace, mercy, and peace. Titus chapter 1, verse 4, in the King James Version at least, says, Grace, mercy, and peace. In the NASB, mercy is absent. But in early texts, the word mercy is there. But only in these three letters. Why is that? It's because pastors need mercy. Not just grace and peace. Pastors, ministers of the gospel, desperately need mercy. And I'll let Charles Spurgeon explain why. Although everybody needs mercy, ministers need it more than anybody else. For if we are not faithful, we shall be greater sinners even than our hearers. So I shall take those three things to myself. Grace, mercy, and peace. You may have the two, grace and peace, but I need mercy more than any of you. So I take it from my Lord's loving hand, and I will trust and not be afraid, despite all my shortcomings and feebleness and blunders and mistakes in the course of my whole ministry. Grace is getting what none of us deserve. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. I am so thankful as a pastor that I don't get what I deserve. Because if I did, I wouldn't last. So I believe pastors, ministers of the gospel, they need a little mercy. Let me encourage you to give it to them. I'm not asking for me. I'm really asking for less. Because he's having a hard time. (laughs) But pastors need mercy. And so with the greeting now behind us, verse 3, I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience, the way my forefathers did, as I constantly remember you, my prayers, night and day, longing to see you, even as I recall your tears, so that I may be filled with joy. For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I'm sure that it is in you as well. Now we talked about that on Sunday a bit, looking at Paul's thanksgiving. I thank God specifically... For the subject of this sentence, which is Timothy's sincere faith. He thanks God, and there are all these other aspects of his thankfulness, but it really lands on Timothy's sincere faith. Sincere in the Greek is unfeigned, unpretentious, undisguised. In other words, he just had real faith. There was nothing religious about it. There was nothing pious or pretentiously pious about the faith that Timothy has. And what I love about the relationship of these two that spills over in the letters of Paul and in the book of Acts, Paul and Timothy had genuine love for each other because they shared a real faith together, a sincere faith. Their relationship is bound up in this genuine love for Jesus that causes them to love each other, even to the point that they're hanging on each other in tears at their last meeting. Gentlemen, brothers, when was the last time you clung to a brother in tears at your parting? Well, I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but it's usually more like, okay, see ya. You know, later, bro. Love you, man. See, if you add man, it's cool. And here Paul says, I recall your tears. I long to see you because I just, I remember our last meeting. There was, 
There were so many tears at our parting. Now, when I taught this before, and I actually went back and double-checked my old notes from a few years back, and I said, this is proof positive Timothy was a wimp and a crybaby. And I told you on Sunday, I have changed my mind. See, studying the Bible changes your mind on many things. Don't, don't hold on tight to what you think is, is true. You hold on tight to the Word of God. Because whatever you think today, by next week, could be different. We're always growing. We're being sanctified. Since the last time I taught this, I've watched what Paul and Timothy have done in Acts, in the letters of Paul. I've watched Paul send Timothy into dark and difficult and divisive situations in other churches. You don't send a wimp and a crybaby to places like that. So my apologies to Timothy early on. Now I think I'm coming around. His tears are not a manifestation of his childishness. They're a manifestation of his sincere faith. That he's authentic. He's just real. You know that Timothy is one of very few people in the Bible called a man of God? He's a young man, but, but he's referred to twice by Paul as a man of God. 1 Timothy chapter 6.11 is the first place. He's not a crybaby. He is a man of God. And the truth is, brothers, when men of God can openly weep together, it is evidence of genuine faith in Christ. Don't start crying on me. <laughs> I'm just waiting for the opportunity, Pastor <laughs> No. The weeping of... Paul and Timothy just shares the truth of their love. And I I feel so strongly about this. I mean, look at Jesus. Well, let's look at Him. Do we see that example in Jesus? Or did He just tough it out? Dry eyes. Steely gaze. Or in fact, do we see at the tomb of Lazarus that Jesus didn't hide His tears? John 11.35 Do we note as He approaches Jerusalem that Jesus wept aloud? Luke 19.41 Do we see in Gethsemane that He invites Peter, James, and John to keep watch with Him on His most tearful night? Matthew 26.36 and following. We see the tears of Jesus. Tears of a true, genuine man of God the God-man. And so when we see the tears in Timothy, or recognize other tears, hey, it's, it's just the expression of a deep love. Of course, you know, on, on the night that Jesus wept in the Garden of Gethsemane, you remember what happened. He, he said, Peter, James, John, I want you guys close. He wasn't afraid of them seeing His tears. I want you nearby. Pray for me. Pray with me. I'm, I'm going to go right over there. You guys stay here. Keep watch. Pray. And He shows up and they are sound asleep. Instead of sharing His tears, they're sawing logs. Which is a more typically male response, I think. Oh yeah, I'm feeling you, bro. And they're sound asleep. And Jesus says, Matthew 26.41, The Spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. You know, our spiritual nature desires real intimacy, even the tenderness of tears. The spirit man, the spirit woman, longs for that kind of free, genuine, real relationship. It's the flesh that recoils. It's the flesh that pushes back. Pride says, no, no, I'm not going to show that side. And I, I mention all this because there is a sad casualty that has taken place in Western culture, and it is even worse right now in the gender confusion of our day. 
And that is men have been robbed of genuine brotherly love and affection. The kind that we see with Paul and Timothy. The kind that we see of the Ephesian elders. Acts chapter 20, verse 37. They began to weep aloud and embrace Paul and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken that they would not see his face again. Why all these tears in the Scriptures? They come of love. They're the expression of a heart that truly loves. And Jesus said by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Bros, don't be afraid to show who you are in Christ. Jesus was not afraid to show us who He was and who He is. Verse 6. For this reason, what reason? Timothy's sincere faith. Now keep that in mind. The reason that Paul is going to go on and discuss is the sincere faith of Timothy. It's still at the heart of this opening section. For this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity or cowardice, but of power and love and discipline. And some might say, and I have said, right there, Timothy was timid. We could have called him timidly. Because Paul has to tell him, God has not told us to be timid, so come on, Timothy. And Paul's trying to rouse him up. And I used to think that way. But again, looking at the other evidence of who Timothy was and what he did for the church early on, I have a hard time thinking he was timid. So what is Paul getting at here? Listen. Paul knows he is on the way out. And I think what he's saying is, Timothy, keep the fire burning bright, son. Now is not the time to shrink back. I will not be here anymore. I'm not going to be around to back you up. Be strong. Kindle afresh. Be a light. Be a fire. I'm not going to be here anymore. How do we do that? How do we kindle afresh? We're going to talk about that on Sunday morning. Kindle afresh. The gift of God which is in you. How does that take place though? Well, I'll give you this. There's sound biblical precedent, precedents, plural, for receiving the Holy Spirit, listen, by the laying on of hands. I was not raised in that tradition. Some of you were. It was weird to me the first time someone said, let me pray for you, and they put the hand on What are you doing, man? You're not going to start crying, are you? (laughs) The laying on of hands, which we do and have done, I don't know, as far back as I can remember in this fellowship. Why do you do that? Why does everybody have to touch everybody? There is biblical precedence for the laying on of hands. Acts chapter 8, verse 17. Peter and John came down to Samaria. They began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. And then Acts chapter 19, verse 5. In Ephesus, disciples, Paul runs into these disciples, baptized in the baptism of John the Baptist, but not baptized into Christ. And he explained to them the difference. And when they heard this, it says, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, Paul said in that letter, Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through the prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. 
Well, now we find out it wasn't just the presbytery. It was the presbytery and Paul. They were all there. Paul says, this gift of God is in you through the laying on of my hands. What I'm getting at is that this idea of laying hands on someone to receive the Holy Spirit was so commonplace in the early church, the Hebrew writer had to say, let's leave the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works, faith toward God, instructions about washings, and laying on of hands, and the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Those six things that he lists right there, that's basic Christianity 101. The Hebrew writer says, time to move on. Not that those aren't important concepts, but if you don't have those by now, come on! That's that's an introduction class. In the early church, the laying on of hands was so common, that's just what you did. Everybody knows about that. Everybody understands. What do they understand? That when someone lays hands on another and prays that they receive the Holy Spirit, that's what's happening. That's taking place. That is not some weird arm of the church, some you know lefty movement. That is biblical truth, the laying on of hands. What's the point? Why does God have us do that? Wes? Why are we supposed to be about... Listen, there's no more power in my hands than there is in the water in our baptistry. There's no more power in my hands than there is in the, the bread and the wine of communion. Except that what happens spiritually. See, I believe when we're baptized, we go into the water and we come out, something spiritually changes. Something is affected. It's not just the symbol. There's more to it. There's something in the spirit realm and in our lives that is impacted and changed and altered for all eternity. I believe when we come to the table of the Lord and we take of the bread and we drink the juice, I don't believe in transubstantiation that it becomes the flesh and blood of Jesus. That we're experiencing mini cannibalism every week. But I believe something spiritually shifts in our lives and in the spirit realm around us. God is doing something unifying that that is beyond our comprehension physically. When we lay hands on one another and pray for the receiving of the Holy Spirit, we are doing something that, while physically is, you know, common, you're just putting your hand on someone. Doesn't mean that the person putting hands on has some greater power or anything else. What it means, though, is there is something being given spiritually. Something taking place. We do this physically and something happens spiritually. I'll put it this way. The laying on of hands is the agency of impartation. Maybe you've heard that word. Impartation. Sounds religious. It's not. Impartation is just giving. And what we see is in the laying on of hands, it expresses the unbroken, continuous passing along of the gift that was given all the way back at Pentecost. And it has been passed along since Pentecost all the way up to present day by the laying on of hands. What is that gift? Give you a little, first a little bubble for Sunday morning's teaching. But when he says, kindle afresh the gift of God, in verse 6, the gift is singular. He is not talking about the spiritual gifts in general. And I think he's talking about much more than simply the gift of teaching, which I believe Timothy has. Kindle afresh the gift of God. The greatest gift that God gives 
As wonderful as the spiritual gifts are, the greatest gift He gives is Himself. He gives His Spirit. Peter said in Acts 2.38, Repent each of you, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of, of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And you know what they did? They went into the water. 3,000 people were baptized that day. I wish we could be there. I would love to have a video camera on what took place when they came up out of the water. Was it baptized towel? Baptized towel? Baptized towel? Or was it baptized, come up out of the water, and then Peter or an apostle would lay hands on the person and pray, receive the Holy Spirit. Timothy, Paul says, Timothy, you remember I laid hands on you, the presbytery laid hands on you, you received the Holy Spirit, you received then all the gifts that come with the Spirit. How does Timothy's sincere faith, along with the, the gift of God, how does this remain in him? He was sealed by the Spirit. And so the laying on of hands is nothing kooky or weird. It's biblical for a brother or sister in Christ to lay hands on and ask for the Spirit to be poured out on another. Timothy was sealed by the Spirit. This is important for us. How do we continue in faith? How do we keep going even when it gets difficult? Even when it feels like the rug's being pulled out under us or perhaps our leaders or our close friends or our spiritual fathers like Paul are being executed right and left. What do we do? How do we keep going? We are sealed by the Spirit. You know this, don't you? You have been sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Ephesians 1.13 This is so important. Some people think the seal of the Spirit is our all-access pass to heaven. That's how we get in. I have a seal of the Spirit, so when I show up, I'll go get sealed. Spirit. I, I don't know where the mark is or the seat, but I got it. So I go in. And, and, and that's true. In part, that's true. He, he is our, the seal of our inheritance, the Bible says. I think back to when I used to go to Knott's Berry Farm as a kid in Anaheim. We had Knott's Berry Farm and Disneyland both, and they're in different parts. You know, Knott's Berry Farm had Ghost Town, which I thought was really cool. But what was really cool about it was when you went in to Knott's, you had to get your hand stamped. Well, Knott's Berry Farm, and these are back in the early days where black lights were just like awesome, right? And you get your hand stamped, but you couldn't see anything. I still remember the very first time they stamped my hand to go into Knott's Berry Farm's ghost town, and I couldn't see anything, and I said, you need to stamp again because there there's nothing there. And they said, put your hand under this light. I put my hand, and this ghost appears. I'm like, ah! And so people look at, sometimes the spirit is simply that. I got the stamp. I got the seal. So I'm going to heaven. Well, that's true, you are. Other people will look at the seal of the Spirit for signs and wonders. I have the Spirit of God in me and upon me. Therefore, I can do these power miracles. I can heal. I can speak in tongues. I can do this or that or the other. And and you know what? I believe it. Of course you can You have the supernatural spirit of the living God living within you. Why would you think that you're limited then in what He can accomplish in you and through you? Of course you can. But the greatest thing the Holy Spirit does is seal our faith in Jesus Christ. That's truly the point of His presence. Jesus said so. The Spirit guards our faith. He keeps our faith. He protects our faith. 
The Helper, the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, John 14.26, whom the Father will send in My name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. When the Helper comes, John 15.26, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will testify about Me. The primary work of the seal of the Spirit in your life, in my life, is to maintain our sincere faith. From now till the day when I need my all-access pass. From now till the day during which many things will happen by His Spirit and by His power. But the primary issue is that He keeps my faith. I don't know if that's comforting to you. I hope it is. But as one who many times over the years worried about losing faith, what if I'm not growing enough in my faith? Or what if my faith isn't strong enough to handle some situation? Hey, you have the seal of the Spirit of the living God to maintain, guard, keep, and protect your faith. Trust Him. Well, so if, if the Spirit does all that, what's my part? Read on, verse 8. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, His prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the Gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. You know what? That's power. That is power exemplified. And then he says in verse 10, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. You know what that is? It's love. The love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, abolishing death and bringing life. For which, Paul says, verse 11, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. Well, that's discipline. Power, love, and discipline. God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. And I believe what Paul does in verses 8 through 11 is give description and explanation of verse 7. And we're going to look at that actually a lot more closely on Sunday morning. But Paul is explaining some things and he's exemplifying here for us what this power, love, and discipline or sound-mindedness looks like. And he does so in three ways. Verse 11, he says, I'm a preacher, I'm an apostle, I'm a teacher. I'm a preacher. Keros is the word and it's a herald. One who heralds the gospel. Preaching is important. Preaching is always about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Which is why I tend to more fashion myself a teacher more than a preacher. Oh, I can preach. And, and I have preached. Sometimes I do preach. Sometimes people come up and say, Rick, you were preaching at us today. But that's what a carex does, a, a herald of the good news. An apostle, an apostolos, is one who is sent by authority. We've already talked about that. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Sent out by authority. Paul says, I preach the gospel. I'm an apostle who was sent. And I am didaskalos. A teacher. One who carries the authoritative weight of the Word of God. And to me, of the three, it's the most important. 
We need preaching. We need the Gospel to be spoken. We need those who are going to be sent. But we need to be taught of the sound Word of God. And as time runs out in Paul's life, this, I believe, is his greatest concern, bar none. By far, his greatest concern is the continuation of the teaching of sound words. And that's what he's pouring out to Timothy in this letter as well. I'm lonely, I want you to come to me. But Timothy, I want you to teach. Don't be afraid to teach. Don't slip back. When I'm gone, press on. Teach the Word of God. Teach the sound words. Paul recognizes if the Word isn't taught then Christians will slide. And non-Christians will never come to the truth. He says in chapter 3, look over there, verse 1, realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. How do you get there? I'll tell you something. If you are consistently moving through, feeding on the sound words of God's Word, these things will not apply. You will not go there. You will not be this way. But Paul says in the last days, difficult times will come. The word difficult is literally perilous. And I believe we are in those times. These are perilous times right now. Not only because we're in the last of the last days, but because of what we see going on around us. Paul defines it for us. Look at chapter 4, verse 3. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. That's what happens in difficult and perilous times. That's why all these these men who are lovers of self and money and boastful and arrogant and all the rest, they rise up in times where the Word of God is not taught and where the sound Word of truth is, is left to the wayside. How do we, in this culture, in these last days, keep our sincere faith by the seal of the Spirit and by the sound words of God? It is that simple. Haven't we said this over and over for 14 years? It's the Word and it's the Spirit. It's the Word and the Spirit. You need the Spirit of God to maintain and keep your faith to guard it. You need the Word of God to know what that faith is. And if we have those two functioning in our lives, we will stand no matter how perilous the times become. And Paul says in verse 12 of chapter 1, For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that He is able to guard what I have entrusted to Him until that day. I know what I've entrusted to God is going to be guarded and kept and maintained. Let me ask you this. Has it been? In Paul's case, for 2,000 years, this has been maintained. In the letters of Paul, the experience of Paul, 
The life of the early church, breathing life into the church of every age across 2,000 years, has God not kept what Paul has entrusted to him? No, it's bigger than simply Paul's letters. But we have right in front of us, even reading this last letter of Paul, we're looking into words of a man who lived 2,000 years ago. And they're clear, and they're consistent, and based on extant little pieces, documentation, and and early scriptures, this has not changed. Has God kept it? You know, for, for those who say the Word of God has been corrupted, I say, really? So you're telling me that God is not capable of keeping His Word? Of maintaining it? If this is the God we have studied in Scripture and the God we have come to know and love, He has kept His Word. And He has kept what Paul entrusted. And Paul goes, I knew it! I knew He would! But think about this. David Guzik writes the following. He says, you know, if there were Christian radio back then, no one would be interviewing Paul. If there were Christian magazines back then, Paul would not have been on the cover. Paul would have had a hard time finding a publisher for the letters he had written. For many Christians of that day, Paul seemed too extreme, too committed, and not flashy or famous enough. Especially here at the end, when people are turning away from him right and left. So if the popular Christian press was against Paul, or ignorant of Paul, how did his letters survive these 2,000 years? I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that He is able to guard what I have entrusted to Him until that day. How encouraging is that? When you pray, do you realize you're entrusting something to Him? When you share Jesus with something, you have just entrusted something to God. When you live out your Christian life, genuinely before other people, you are entrusting this faith of yours to God to be used of Him. And I promise you, as Paul recognizes and as we see in him, God will keep it. God will guard it until that day. Paul, Note this though, Paul doesn't say, I know what I believe. I know what I believe. I'm sure of what I believe. No, Paul says, I know of whom I have believed. Big difference between what and whom. You can know all kinds of doctrine and not know Jesus. It is about who He is. Paul says, I know Him whom I have believed. It's absolutely vital in our faith. One commentator wrote, To every eye but that of faith, it must have appeared just then as if the gospel was on the eve of extinction. The letter does not come at a time of great encouragement or revival for the church. It comes at a time of great confusion. So Paul writes to Timothy, I may suffer. I may be in chains. I may be in prison. But I know Jesus is Christ. I know He is Savior. I know regardless of my circumstances that He's got me. And He's going to get me across the finish line on that day. It's a great phrase. On that day or until that day. Paul knows Jesus is Savior both now and and then, and every second in between. He's going to get you there. He's going to get me there. I not feel like it on some days. It may have been a long day, or a long week, or a long year. He will get you there. I know whom I have believed. 
First Thessalonians 5.24 Faithful is He who calls you and He will also bring it to pass. That is His second coming. Philippians 1.6 He who began a good work in you will perfect it until that day. Until the day of Christ Jesus. Until that day. He has given us a rock solid retaining wall that will hold up our faith. I think of the retaining wall around the temple in Jerusalem. Some of you have seen that wall. Massive. One of the few things that Herod built that survived, I mean, there's Masada, there's some remnant of Masada, and there's Herodian, and there's some other places, and we know he was a great architect, but that retaining wall in Jerusalem is still there. When, when Herod came in and said, okay, I want to retrofit the temple, I want to redo it. So, first of all, we're going to expand the temple mount. And he built literally a 30-acre box with a retaining wall all the way around it and the wall of, of stones that are absolutely massive. It's breathtaking. You go down in a little place they call the Rabbi's Tunnel and you can walk along these stones that are 40 feet long, 10 feet high. And, and going great depths, but so heavy, we still don't know how they moved them. There are some ideas, perhaps, of maybe how they use, you know, different methods to get these stones up there. But that retaining wall is still there, and it's still solid. And, you know, there's still all kinds of things going up on top of the Temple Mount. And the temple in the tribulation is going to be built right up there as well. Rick, why are you talking about a retaining wall? Well, look at verse 13. Paul says, retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. The sound word of God along with the Spirit of God is the retaining wall for your faith, for my faith. So how's your retention? How's your retention with sound words? Have you ever said something like, man, I wish I could remember Scripture. I wish I could memorize verses. I'm so bad about that. Doesn't the Bible say somewhere, someplace, something about, you know, I mean, if you've ever struggled in that position, let me ask you this question. Do you drive? How do you remember? I mean, how, when you get behind the wheel of a car, how do you remember What comes first? Turn this thing and... Okay. How do you know what to do when you get behind the wheel? That's a stupid question, Rick. I know what to do because I do it all the time. (laughs) Exactly. If you want to retain... Listen, certain skills, knowledge, ability, there are things we do that are second nature to us. Because we do them all the time. How do you maintain, how do you retain the standard of sound words? How do you get the Word of God in you to where it's just flowing through you and you're able to retain and recount and recall Scripture right and left? That you don't even have to have a Bible in your hands to be recalling the Word of God. How do you do that? You know what what Paul says? He says, be. Note this, the word retain here in the Greek is echo. And it is simply translated, be. B. In sports, we'd say, be the ball. Be the ball, man. You know, in life, the motivational speaker will say, be the change. (laughs) 
in the military, be all that you can be. And here Paul is saying, be the standard of sound words. That's how you retain. That's where the strength is. When you be the word. We don't live on human opinion. We don't base our faith on human understanding. Hey, what do you think of this passage? Hey, what does that guy think? I'll tell you, one of the things that used to bug me about small groups is when a scripture is read and the question is asked, what do you think he's saying? And we, and we all come to a place of understanding based on human opinion rather than, well, what does the Bible say he's saying? This is a hard passage. I'm not sure what it means. Well, let's look at some other comparative passages and see if we can't glean from scripture what scripture is trying to teach us. Or let's ask the Spirit to teach us. But we base so much of our lives on human opinion. And get outside of the church and it's far worse. All people do is get other people's opinion on stuff. Really? You want to live on the opinion of people who haven't lived any longer than you have? Be the Word. Just be the Word. Jesus said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Be the Word. Which is what you're doing here tonight. And by the way, you are the Marys in a family of Marys and Marthas and Lazaruses. You're the Marys. You're here. Jesus would tell you tonight, you've chosen the better part. And I imagine some of you got here just barely because it's been one of those weeks. But you're here. You have chosen the better part. You are choosing right now how to be the Word. Be in the Word. Be about the Word. Be encompassed by the Word. Be surrounded by the Word. You know what God told Israel? Just listen to this. This is all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words, Moses says, which I'm commanding you today, shall be on your heart. Well, that sounds really nice. Very spiritual and even a little emotive, Moses. But what do you mean? The word shall be on my heart. He says, you shall teach them diligently to your sons. Which does two things. It gets the word on your son's heart, and it gets the word more deeply embedded in your heart, because you're the one teaching it. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house. When you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. And so the Jewish leaders came up with the phylacteries, you know, stick the little box with the scripture in it on their head as if by osmosis it's going to get in. That's not what Moses was saying. Make sure it's on your mind. Keep it... On your hand, in other words, in your hands, what you're doing, let, let what you're doing be about the word. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house. And so Jewish homes today throughout Israel have the mezuzah, which is another little box on the doorpost of every house, and scripture goes in it. But that scripture is sitting there. It's not getting in. Now, please understand, it's done out of deep respect for the word of God. But to get the Word in you, you must be in the Word. You've got to be about the Word. If you want to retain the sound words, you've got to hear them. You've got to use them. They need to be about everything that you're doing. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 14, tells us that solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Retain 
the standard of sound words. Be the word. Verse 14. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. So be the word and then guard through the Spirit. So we're right back to again. Here we are at the end of Paul's preaching, teaching, apostolic career. And the two things he lands on over and over are the Word and the Spirit. The Spirit and the Word. He's just repeating what he has said again and again. You want to maintain this? Be the Word and guard by the Spirit. The treasure. You know what that means? To guard through the Holy Spirit demands a life of prayer. You cannot guard by the Holy Spirit without talking to and listening to the Holy Spirit. Prayer is not just an exercise for Christians to do religiously. It is our point of connection to the Spirit of God. It is how we guard this very treasure that has been entrusted to us. Man, through the Spirit means we call Him in on our daily lives. We're not trying to do it alone. I mean, I've said before, all those people who think of church as an afterthought, Christians who who are rare in attendance, you know what they're really doing? They're living life on their own. They're doing it themselves without any help. You can do that. It's hard. Or you can guard through the Spirit, the treasure that has been entrusted to you. Guard the treasure. Listen to what the psalmist says. This is David. In Psalm 119, Spurgeon calls Psalm 119 David's pocketbook. I love it. And in verse 33 of this long psalm, listen listen to what he writes. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I shall observe it to the end. Give me understanding that I may observe your law and keep it with all my heart. Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Turn away my eyes from looking at vanity and revive me in your ways. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for you. Turn away my reproach which I dread, for your ordinances are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. Revive me through your righteousness. Hear what he just said? He he calls on the Spirit of God. Teach me, Lord. Give me understanding. Make me walk. Incline my heart. Turn my eyes away. Establish your word. Turn away my reproach. Revive me. you got to do this, Lord. I can't. I don't have it in me. And as much as I might want to retain the sound words given to me, it's not going to take unless I guard through the Holy Spirit the treasure that's been given to me. I've got to be as in tune with Him in prayer as I am hungering for the Scriptures. Paul says guard it. Guard that treasure. What's the treasure that he's talking about here? It's a specific treasure. And I think even biblically, we can point to different things that the Bible refers to as as a treasure. There are many gems, there are priceless uh, jewels, pearls in the treasure box of the Scripture. The Scripture is a treasure trove, but there's a specific treasure that we are guarding here that has been entrusted to us, and the context, I believe, lays it out for us. The treasure is the Gospel. Jesus Christ, who came, who died, 
who resurrected and who's coming again has been entrusted. This is what's been given to us. This is the one thing we can lay hold of, we can lay claim to in this world. If God has given me anything, He's given me the Gospel. He's entrusted it to me. Guard it. Guard it, Timothy, Paul says. Guard it, Bridge Fellowship, Paul would tell us. Through the Holy Spirit, the good news of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Back in 1 Timothy 6.19, he refers to the treasure of a good foundation for the future. That's the Gospel. So that we will take hold of that which is life indeed. O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. Now, as we close out the chapter, and we will here in short order, Paul gives examples, both positive and negative, of what this looks like. Of those who retain sound words and guard through the Holy Spirit, he gives one example. Of those who don't, he gives more than one. First look at what it does not look like. This is the negative example, verse 15. You are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Fugilus and Hermogenes. Fugilus and Hermogenes. We would say Fugilus and Hermogenes, but Hermogenes sounds more like something that happens with a gallon of milk. It's Fugilus and Hermogenes. And Fugilus, these guys... Well, first look at the Asian churches. All who are in Asia turned away from me. The psychologist would say, well, that's what happens when you get depressed. You feel like the whole world is against you. So Paul clearly is just depressed here. I'm sorry I beg to differ. Paul is not writing, nobody likes me. Everybody hates me. I think I'll eat some worms. Paul is saying, all who are in Asia turned away from me. This is a statement, my friends, of fact. That the churches in Asia, he had planted, as we've talked about, they are either ignoring him, ignorant of him, embarrassed by him, or in some cases, outright condemning Paul. It's like they're saying, did you hear? Paul's in prison again. Yeah, I heard. Man, it's a mark on all of us, isn't it? Just an embarrassment. A leader of Christianity, and he's back in jail yet again. How many times is he going to go into jail? Do you suppose he really did something this time? I mean, you can't keep getting thrown into jail and not be guilty of something. I mean, didn't he himself once say, for rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil? Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. That's Romans 13, verse 3. I know Paul said that, so he must have done something wrong And so all the churches in Asia have turned away from Paul. It's bandwagon negativity. People love to jump on that bandwagon, especially when it has drivers. And the drivers here are Fugilus and Hermogenes. Interesting names. Names are fascinating in the Bible because of how appropriate they are. Fugilus means little fugitive. This is a man who's running away. A fugitive from the faith. Running from all that Paul has stood for, which is Jesus Christ in the Gospel. Fugilus is a deserter. And then you have Hermogenes, whose name means the seed of Hermes. That's interesting. Hermes is Mercury. You know, the one with the little little feet and he can run really fast. So he's running away too. 
These two guys represent all that runs away from, and they are leading people away from Paul and away from the truth. A runaway mentality in a mass sprint from the apostle sitting in prison. These are the guys who are not retaining the standards of sound words and they are not guarding through the Holy Spirit the treasure which has been entrusted. Don't be like these guys. But you want to know someone to be like? Verse 16. The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus. For he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains, but when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. So he's not running away, he's running too. The Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day, and you know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus, Onesiphorus, whose name means bringer of blessing. And he was. Bringer of profit, bringer of refreshment. And that's exactly what he did. He brought blessing and refreshment to Paul. What do we know of this man, Onesiphorus? Only what Paul tells us here. Nothing else. And yet, he is mentioned by Paul as a blessing to Paul. But there's a subtle implication here with Onesiphorus. And I want to make sure you don't miss this. Every reference that Paul offers to what Onesiphorus did is in the aorist tense, which is typically or generally past tense. Note that. Onesiphorus did these things. He, he searched for me, past tense. He, he uh, served me, even at Ephesus. He refreshed me. This is all past. These are all things he did in the past. Hmm. He also says in verse 16, may the Lord grant mercy to his household. Well, what about to him? Grant mercy to his household. In verse 18, he says, may the Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. Mercy to his household now. Mercy to Onesiphorus on that day, which is on that day, it's the coming of Christ. And then at the end of the letter, chapter 4, verse 19, he says, he's giving final greetings, he says, greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Not Onesiphorus, just his household. Where's Oni? Where'd he go? He's probably dead. Well, not dead. Probably alive in Christ. He's already gone home. I I think the implication here is that Onesiphorus served Paul marvelously, but no longer is living on earth. But has already died and gone on to heaven eternally. And Paul here remembers him, thinks about him, and prays for him, this dear bringer of blessing. Now, Wait wait a minute. So Paul's praying for the dead? Can we do that? Is that like part of the thing? Are we allowed to... Do we pray for the dead? Listen, what Paul says as he recalls Onesiphorus is he says, the Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. He's just saying, oh man, if anyone deserves to see mercy in the eyes of God. It's Onesiphorus. Well, wouldn't Paul know if he was going to find mercy from God? Now, I told you when we started the chapter, when Paul said grace, mercy, and peace, mercy is an emotional word. 
It's a pathos word in the Greek. It's alias. Alias describes not only the act of giving mercy, but it describes a person's feelings of kindness toward another. And how I believe Paul is using it here is it's not an act of mercy given, but it is the kindness evoked. As if saying, boy, you know, I think of Onesiphorus, and if I, could, if I could pray anything for him, it's that he would see kindness in the eyes of Jesus on that day. That Jesus would look at him and, and Onesiphorus would see the mercy of God. Would see that love, would see that kindness, that generosity, that, that deep spirit, that blessing. And so I believe that what we're hearing here is Paul's feelings for Onesiphorus, not only as an example of one who retained the standard of sound words and guards through the Spirit, or guarded through the Spirit, the treasure entrusted to him, but one who Paul loved, who he misses, and who he just wants the best for him. And may we all experience the mercy, may we all find the mercy of God on that day when we see Jesus and He looks at us. To see kindness in the eyes of Christ. Well, from his death cell, Paul now, beginning this letter, helps us to recognize the desertion of allies and the abandonment of Asia, and this really hurt. This was painful for Paul. His experience was not unlike that of the one whom he had believed. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 26.31, You will all fall away from Me because this night, for it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. You're going to abandon Me, Jesus said to the apostles, to the church, if you will. You're going to run away. On this night. But you know, it's interesting to Me, the same night that the sheep fled away, we read Luke 22.43, an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And I have found, and perhaps you have as well, that when I'm at my lowest, when I'm feeling the most alone, when I feel like I'm in a dungeon cell, it's interesting how there's always a messenger. Seems like there's always an angel. If I'm paying attention, God sends someone with a word of mercy or grace or blessing. We find ourselves looking over all that stuff in our despair and all the negativity and we don't even see or hear it when it comes. But there's always an angel, always a messenger to bring blessing. In the case of Paul, it was Onesiphorus. He would have been angelic to Paul when Paul was in prison. Someone who actually shows up and cares for him and refreshes him and loves him. He was to Paul a minister of grace. One more verse, and so Paul says, chapter 2, verse 1, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. I'll tell you what, if we are strong in anything as followers of His, may we be strong in the grace. Amen? Father, we thank You for Your Word. We pray now that You would Seal it by Your Spirit in our hearts that You would guard this treasure given to us and that we might retain these sound words and and refer to them and go back to them again and again and process and think through. 
that we might be able to recall them when we need them most. Holy Spirit of the living God, I pray, be active and at work in us and call us to the Scriptures, to Your Word again and again. In Jesus' name, Amen.